0: I love difference more than I love the same. So I've always been someone attracted to difference and what's new or something that's emerging. That's what, that's what always attracts me. It's like, what's the new trend? Who's the new person? Who's the new food? What's the new flavor? What's the new ingredient? What's the new color? And it's not like I'm so trendy that I can't keep any of those things because I also love the past.
1: Hey there, I'm Jennifer Stagg, host of Heart of the Home podcast. Today I'm chatting with Stephen Orr, editor in chief of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. As the head of one of America's most storied brands, Stephen finds himself in a unique position of preserving tradition while also forging ahead with new concepts and ideas. And he takes his role very seriously. Stephen grew up in small-town America, eventually leaving his home to chase his dreams in New York City. Now he finds himself bridging the gap between the city and BHG headquarters in Iowa. That's how he spent most of his life, building connections with everyone he meets while sharing his signature charm and love of the world's natural beauty. It's a formula we can all use to make our lives and homes a bit more authentic and interesting. Welcome to Heart of the Home, a podcast exploring the personal histories that inspire our surroundings. Candid conversations about the stories behind the pretty pictures. Tales of design and renovations gone wrong and right. Because a home isn't just a structure filled with themes. It's the people who live there. So join me as we explore the unique stories that help each of us find our way home. Stephen Orr! I'm so happy that you're joining me. Thank you so much. It's
0: so nice to be here. So great to be here. Thank you for asking me.
1: So tell me where you are right at this minute.
0: I'm in Jackson Heights, Queens in New York City. And I've been here since um, March 15th, basically, when I got back from a vacation in Costa Rica. And I was the 16th of March. I was supposed to fly back to Des Moines where I'm usually based. But I've been on vacation with my husband. And so I said, well, this pandemic thing is picking up. Why don't I wait a couple of days to see how that goes before I head back to Iowa while I'm still here?
1: You haven't left.
0: (laughs) And and I still have my suitcase with the same clothes that I went to Costa Rica and that I'm uh, actually still wearing. So I haven't been back to Iowa yet.
1: Wow. You know, March, March 16th is actually my birthday and we had, we had, oh yeah, it was such a happy birthday. No, like (laughs) literally it's like the gauntlet fell on my birthday. Everything shut down. Um, I'm sure that, you know, the same thing happened where you were. I, it's so funny because I think back to the week before that and all of us were like, yeah, things are getting kind of serious in Italy Things seem to be happening really fast, but I think we thought we still had a while, right? Yeah,
0: I thought so too. And that's why we took the, when we took the vacation, we discussed and we said, well, maybe we shouldn't go because things are getting weird at different places around the world. But then we're like, but nothing's happening in Costa Rica and nothing's really happening in the United States yet. But then even while we're on the vacation one thing just started to happen every day. And so then finally, by the time we got back, we were like one of the last people in through the airport. But anyway, here I am. So it's been fine. And, you know, work from home for the magazine. And I I work on a lot of different projects at Meredith um, Publishing that publishes Better Homes and Gardens. um, We've been doing this pretty successfully. We've had to figure out some stuff like photo shoots and stuff. But working from home, we can definitely close the magazine, luckily, um, remotely. So that's been going as well as can be expected, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been reading, of course, I've been reading all of the um, editions that have come out during the pandemic. And it's been so impressive, really, how quickly you were able to pivot and shift and and create content that was relevant, because I know how far in advance you create content. You know, for, for next Christmas, you're photographing this Christmas and, and that kind of thing. So tell me a little bit about what that was like and the conversations that you had to have with your editors and boy, we're, we're dealing with, with situations that the reader has never experienced before.
0: I'd say two things. Part of it is the practicality of us being working, working in the office one week and then getting told, okay, you don't need, you don't come in next week. And so then everybody, you know, had to grab the right equipment and work from home. And that shift has gone I mean, our CEO, Tom Hardy of Meredith, says he would never have imagined how well the whole giant corporation of Meredith could shift to work from home so easily. Um, I do think during the dark parts of the pandemic, and it was very dark here in April, I'd say, uh, especially because I live about, like, I, I can walk over to Elmhurst Hospital, which was in the news a lot at that period, um, with a lot of cases, and my road is the road that the ambulances. Take to Elmer's Hospital, so it was a constant—just people being taken over there in, in the back of ambulances for a long time. So those days were really dark and, in retrospect, more stressful than I knew they'd be. But also, they helped me understand what other people might be going through during this lockdown period, as far as you know, any anything ranging from boredom to severe loneliness. Like you can, there's a big range of what people go through, and I think most of us experience those feelings. Maybe if you times a day if not you know a few times a week if not a few times a day so i think you know trying to think of our readers and what they need to feel inspired at home is where we've been we've had our head um, our heads have been on what do the readers need to navigate this time you know i think summer was kind of a a respite for everybody because the weather's nice and you can get out outside i think most people i talk to and even us as editors we talk a lot about how as the temperatures cool off and the days aren't as beautiful, you know, you start to think about, okay, what am I going to do to make myself happy during the winter? Like, how am I going to, you know, treat myself some way so that I can, you know, not get down? And that's where one of our ideas came up, which is called Project Joy, which is trying to identify and tag it with that name, different projects in the magazine and online and in social that readers can immediately say, okay, this is a an easy, fun either it takes me 15 minutes, it could take an hour, it could take a couple hours, it could take even a weekend, perhaps, but it's something I can do to make myself happy, you know, and for whatever reason, even me, like today, I feel very, I don't feel great today, I feel on edge. So today, I was feeling kind of out of sorts. So I did my usual thing, I took a morning walk. And then I still felt out of sorts. And then I think, you know what, I'm going to make a labor intensive dish for dinner. So tonight I'm going to make, I decided I'm going to make stuffed cabbage. And I've never been a stuffed cabbage person until recently, but during lockdown, I figured out that I actually love stuffed cabbage. I don't come from a stuffed cabbage culture. I'm, you know, I mean, maybe I do. I'm kind of Scots-Irish on one side and French on the other. So I think they might eat stuffed cabbage, but I'm not like from an Eastern European family that grew up with stuffed cabbage. So doing something very labor intensive where you have to blanch all the leaves, and then you make your meat preparation and you make rice or something and you make your stuffing and you roll them up and then you cook them in tomato sauce. That's what I'm going to do this evening. So (laughs) that's my long-winded response. I
1: wouldn't have gone straight to stuffed cabbage, but I do relate with that feeling a lot. Um, I tend to stress bake or stress clean when I feel like things are out of control. It kind of goes to that same feeling.
0: Well, Jen, if you don't like stuffed cabbage, I could get you to like my stuffed (sighs)
1: cabbage. (laughs) Well, I may ask you for that recipe so you can prove me wrong. I, I actually can't say I've ever had stuffed cabbage. So it's going to be an experience. I hadn't either. It's
0: not what you think. It's not like it's cabbage It's just that those leaves make a great thing to stuff. Huh. That's what it really is all about. So it's almost like the size of an egg roll, one of those things. And it's just really tasty. Anyway, we can get off. Cabbage, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm positive if you're making it that it's going to be delicious. I could go on and on about your work experience. I was doing some research for this and I kept saying, I don't even know where to start with this. I mean, you have 30-ish years of experience in the magazine world. You've been at the head of some of the most well the most well-known design, food, magazines and publications in the country in the world. Currently, you're the editor and chief of Better Homes and Gardens and also the content director for Meredith Corporation, which is the parent company of Better Homes. Um, but you've also worked with Martha Stewart. You've worked with Domino, Bon Appetit. you're a, an accomplished author. Let's back up, now that I've now that I've set the stage there, let's back up to your childhood. Your childhood home, you grew up in the South, in Texas, and I am so interested in what your childhood home was like and also what seeds were planted then that led to this career.
0: Oh, thank you. Um yeah, it's been a it's been a really great career, but uh and I wouldn't say I was at the head of any of those brands. I was really more middle, like I was in, in the trenches in various ways as either a garden editor or a travel editor. So I had a bunch of different experiences which helped me by the time I was an editor-in-chief, which is basically this job. So I've only been an editor-in-chief five and a half years, but I think coming to it a little later helped me understand how to do it better because I've had a lot of bosses, some with great examples, and some of them with very valuable negative examples. So I almost use some of my bosses' negative examples about creating content and management more than I even use the positive ones. But back to your question about Texas, um, I guess, yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, how did I grow up in Abilene, Texas, which is a town of about 95,000 in kind of right below the panhandle? a fairly isolated town, Um, not a town known for its, you know, design culture or anything. It's a very nice town to grow up in. I was very happy there, um, you know, and then, you know, at a certain point you just start to get a little bit bored and you start to worry, you know, wonder, well, what could I, what could I be doing? Where else would I want to live? And I think what happened was I decided to, well, first I tried to do the family, follow the family line and that's accounting and business And that didn't work at all. I just don't have a brain for it. But you know how when you're a certain age, like 18, 17, 18, you don't... That's why it's so hard to have young people make the decision about their future at that point is really hard because I thought I needed to go and be an accounting major. So I tried it for two years. I was terrible. And then I told my dad, I want to go and major in um, art. And he, of course, was very worried. He's like, well, you're going to be a starving artist. I can't, you know... My, my whole family is in kind of in the finance biz a little bit um, or some a- aspect of that. My dad was more in the oil business. But so I, I, I just decided I wanted to be in art. And I think pretty soon when I got there, I realized, OK, I'm not a good enough artist to make a living at it. So let me let me take the practical side of art and do, you know, uh, design, graphic design, art direction, that stuff. So I, I did that at University of Texas. And that's when I first started to think about moving to New York City. But I think the reason I even thought about moving to New York City, to even back up a little bit, was that my parents were great travelers. We'd been to New York City a few times. My dad was a great believer in travel as education. So even from our town in Texas, we went to Europe three times for extended, period, for extended periods as a family for like a few weeks. Um, and we would drive from the top of Europe to the bottom of Europe in a van and stay at hotels, stay at like small and mid-range hotels the whole way. My dad had mapped all of it out. He had extensive files and maps and research he'd done. And we knew all, you know, and we took different routes each time we did it over a period of about 10 years. Um, we went to Alaska. We traveled to the Caribbean. Um, you know, we went all all over the U.S. We went to Hawaii a lot. So I think travel was what opened my eyes to what the world has as a possibility to it. And I think, coming to New York was my way of saying, you know, I want to dive more into this big wide world than Abilene has, obviously. And, and I want to be around a bunch of different kinds of people. And so I think my main thing, my background has contributed to me being an editor is that I love difference more than I love the same. So I've always been someone attracted to difference and what's new or something that's emerging that's what, that's what always attracts me. It's like, what's the new trend? Who's the new person? Who's the new food? What's the new flavor? What's the new ingredient? What's the new color? And it's not like I'm so trendy that I can't keep any of those things. Cause I also love the past. I, I love old movies. I love art history. I have a minor in art history. I love history. I love books. I love records, you know? So I love the past, but I love kind of seeing where we're heading. So I think that's kind of, My long-winded way of saying that the exposure I got from travel opened my eyes to newness. And then the newness inspired me to have this job. Because what I feel like we do as editors is we try to keep track of what's going on and then kind of point at it. For people, and they don't have to take it, but we're just like that's a good. We think that's good, and then people can be like, oh yeah, I like that too, or they can say, oh that's not for me. So that's kind of how I do it. I think is is this kind of idea of trying to figure out what's what's new and what's exciting,
1: and also your love of history and sort of like looking back at the past. I feel like is also perfect for for a legacy magazine like Better Homes and Gardens that that has this long readership that expects. Something, and then you're also trying to make it new and fresh and introduce them to new things. I think it's like a a perfect. It's really like a perfect place for you.
0: It's interesting. I've never had a job that was speaking to as many people as this one does. You know, we we mail out you know under just under eight million copies of the magazine a month and we're the largest, you know, consumer monthly in the world as far as magazines go. And then you add on the whole brand and you're up to 40 million audience. So you have a very large audience there. And of course, speaking to a large audience these days is hard because everybody's so divided about everything. So you have to pick your subject matter very carefully. You know, we're never political. We're a, a respite and a refuge from the politics. And, and, you know, you know, you'll never see a politician on our, on my covers. They did have Michelle Obama on the previous Pepper from the previous editor, but that was about the the new vegetable garden at the White House. So there was a reason there is so the kind of the White House vegetable garden. But now we stay away from all of it. It's too divisive. And, and I think that it really does help our reader to, to know that they're safe in the brand, that they don't have to worry about having someone wag their finger at them about anything. And our health stories, too. We do a lot of health stories, but they're very positive. They're really about they're not scary. We don't do scary and sad. We, we want to be a happy refuge for people. But on the other hand, we don't want to act like the world's not having some issues. So we do tackle you know, stories about anxiety or online bullying, or um, or even you know, we have more COVID coverage than we ever have before. And that's a tricky thing right now is to make a magazine, as you say, Jen, in advance um, with our deadline, which is two to three months. Can you imagine predicting what, what's going to be going on in the world in two to three months? I can't. So it's really hard to to pitch it forward that way. So we we do spend a lot of time trying to imagine the way the world would be.
1: I mean, this magazine is nearing a hundred years old. Yeah. And when you took over, you were taking over for, you know, Gail who had been there for what, 30 years. Um, not with, with better homes for 30 years, but with Meredith for 30 years. What was that like when you found out you were going to be taking over this, this position and you were taking over this magazine that, that, you know, as you said, is, is subscribed to by millions of, of people. What was that wait like? And also, what did it make you excited for?
0: Well, the CEO at the time, Steve Lacey, had a good line. He said, Better Homes and Gardens is like a big, giant, you know, old fashioned, you know, Grand Dame cruise ship. You're now the captain. And we want you to steer it and aim at this direction, which is maybe slightly off the current path, but not too far. And if you grab the wheel and you yank it too hard, the boat's gonna turn over and, and all of us are gonna drown. <laughs> so that was his advice. So no pressure. He laughed, you know, he said it, <laughs> no pressure. He said it with a smile, but you know, that's basically it. We we have to walk a line there where I'm trying to lead and entice people into the new to some degree, while comforting them, comforting them with the familiar, hoping not to alienate anybody. You don't want to make it so it's so old fashioned that old that younger folks don't want it. And you don't want to make it so new fashioned that older folks don't like it. So I do think we, we sometimes run, you know, we run aground on one story or another where someone, you know, maybe an older person will write in and say, you know, I don't care about trends. I don't care about this. I, I miss my casseroles. So, You know, I listen to all those voices and we're trying to just find that medium ground because we need to please our legacy customer. We want them to be happy and thrilled and we need a new audience. So we have to somehow pull all that together into a package where everybody feels welcome. So that's the that's the hard part.
1: I think you're doing it really successfully, though. Um, You you know, we are faithful subscribers of Better Homes and Gardens. We always have it on our Thank coffee table. My little girls are always looking through it. But then also my mother-in-law is a huge fan of Better Homes and Gardens. It's always on her coffee table. And she's very traditional, very old fashioned. So the fact that both of us are reading the same magazine and, and also the younger generation, my eight-year-old daughter pours over it and looks at all the pictures, I think that you're accomplishing your goal, I think you're you're hitting multi generational, different backgrounds, and and finding a way to make it feel old and new at the same time, which is a tall order.
0: Thank you, I appreciate that. I'd say one of the markers of that makes it a little challenging is there's there's such a there's such a generational difference right now, even between I'm a Gen X, so between Gen X and like young millennials and Gen Z, there's a I feel old a lot of times when a conversation comes up about things. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I feel so old. And then then we're making magazine for the oldest boomers and maybe some greatest generation people. And I'm sure they have things. So one thing I'd mark out as a a big difference in media and magazines that is different versus maybe Better Homes and Gardens 20 years ago, because Gail Butler, the previous editor, had done modernizing. They worked with a brand consultant They had more people in there. They had Stylemaker, our signature franchise that you've been a part of so many times. So Stylemaker, I think, came out of some of that work because they wanted to personify the brand a little more because a, a modern media company is as much about people as it is ideas, I think, in many ways. And younger folks particularly are used to, because of social media, following people on Instagram that they don't know, in air quotes, they know of them they might be like, Jen Stagg's awesome. I consider her to be my best friend, but you know, Jen doesn't know them, but, but they feel they have a relationship with you through the way you put your social media out there. So in our magazine, we have more people than they would have ever had 15 to 20 years ago. It would have just been anonymous BHG ideas at that period, much more. It would have been like, here are all these ideas and inspiration from Better Homes and Gardens. There wouldn't really be a lot of people in there. Now, We feel it's more interesting to kind of attach it to a person. And that helps us a lot. It helps us with diversity. It helps us with authenticity. There's been a lot of conversation recently about recipes being authentic. And, you know, if you're making a recipe from a certain culture and you're doing a kind of an American interpretation of it, do you identify it as an American interpretation or do you just? Put it out there and hope for the best. And what we tend to do is if we're doing something specifically, let's say on Persian cuisine, we will do we will do that story with a Persian cookbook author who has a book coming out. And that and she or he will tell us there from their culture the right way to do it. We don't have to guess and be like, okay, we're making up our own Persian dinner here, you know, and Persian American. (laughs) what could go wrong yeah so so i think that's that's one of the benefits of having the magazine more populated with people i think so that's but but then sometimes i'll get a note or two from an older reader who say who will say i don't know why you have these people in there i don't know them and i don't care about them and i think that's just the generational difference you know to some degree
1: The heart of the home continues in just a moment. Hey everyone, just letting you know about our accessories collection now on Stag Design Shop. It's growing from candlesticks to rugs to luxurious throws. These items will elevate your home and make great companions to our artwork, pillows, and existing accessories. You can view the new collection for yourself at stagdesignshop.com. That's stag with two G's. I want to talk about your home life, because as you mentioned, you have a home base in Des Moines now, even though you keep your home in Jackson Heights in Queens. You, you went through a remodel of the home in Des Moines, right? I remember you saying to me at, at one of the style makers, like, yeah, my painter and I, we've gotten to know each other real well because I walk out <laughs> yeah. of the bathroom and I'm like, hey, yeah. Steve yeah. or whatever his name was. What was that like moving from the city to Des Moines with your husband?
0: Well, um, it's been, I mean, Des Moines great. It's a great, it's a very manageable town of great, it's a small city with, with suburbs. You know, I think it has, you know, somewhere between, depending on how you count it, four and 700,000 people as population, depends on how you count the suburbs, I think. But but Des Moines, and in fact, I miss Des Moines right now since I haven't been back for a while. Des Moines is kind of the opposite of New York. So going back and forth, I always, I always would say that Des Moines helps me love New York and New York helps me love Des Moines is really it. I I, And it's different now in New York because I'm not doing that commute every weekday, which is from Queens down to the, near the One World Trade Center is about an hour. That's a lot of time and a lot of effort with getting to the subway and cramming on that rush is not around because of work from home. So I don't, I don't have the same need to escape it as I did when I lived here and I would be packed on, the, uh, the E train under the, under the East River in the middle of January with just stuck there for 15 or 20 minutes wondering when we're gonna move. That stress is gone, but I still miss so many aspects of Des Moines. So when I was in Des Moines, I, I would just love kind of the more small town vibe. Everyone's super nice. I loved having my whole house that I could have a garden in, but it also was an old house. So, you know, there's always something falling apart. Um, you know, I'll never forget when I was leaving for Thanksgiving and the sewage pipe in the basement broke and sewage started coming back in. I mean, that kind of stuff, you know, you're just like, why? (laughs) Um, and then in New York city, we live in an, in an apartment. It's a, it's a historic district here in Jackson Heights and it's a pre-war apartment. It's old too, but you have a super, you know, so the super can deal with some of these problems. If there's a leak in a window, you know, it's the building that helps you. So I just love both. I, I look forward to getting back to Des Moines. Um, Des Moines is just, is easy and manageable. New York has been harder, but as I'm saying, Jen, right now, New York is very easy. Um, it's like a village. Um, we tend to stick to our neighborhood more than we ever have. So I'm, I'm, you know, my neighborhood is not empty at all because the people here, it's a, it's a very mixed neighborhood of income and, and, and culture. So, our neighborhood didn't flee. We're not wealthy enough to flee. So our neighborhood, everyone's here. So it it has proven to be a real beautiful experience to get to know this neighborhood better. Um, and then New York City in general is picking up in a lot of different ways too. Manhattan's still a bit quieter, but even then it's still picking up. So I like both and I can't wait, wait to get back to Des Moines. It's, it's been fun. And actually that goes back to what I was saying earlier, Jen, about the newness. I bore, I get bored a little kind of easy, let me admit it. And so having both was a good is a good way to not get in a rut.
1: Yeah. No, I, I share that as well. Every time we finish a house, I'm like, okay, what's the next project? <laughs> like I'm ready to move on to the next project. I want to expand a little bit on this experience that you've gone through locking down in Jackson Heights because you're such a great follow on Instagram. I I feel you. like you, your Instagram has turned into sort of mini history lessons on parts of the city that I didn't even know existed. Um, it's been so fascinating to watch you on your walks, go around the city, and talk about your neighbors who are growing squash from their balconies and parts of the city that I didn't, I had never visited before. And I lived in New York for a period of time. Like a Astoria Park was probably one of my favorite little tours yeah, that you nice. gave. Yeah, it's a it's a park. What, well, I'll let you tell us about it. But the Art Deco swimming pool and the signage was just. It was so fascinating and I found myself going back to your Instagram again and again for these little history lessons is that kind of what you intended when you started going on walks
0: I think I didn't really have an intention other than it's a creative outlet really and as someone who enjoys research I'm kind of part librarian I guess I love research I love researching history so um and I love photography. My degree turned out to be after the failed accounting experience for two years, uh, that it turned into painting and photography. So um, I love taking pictures with my phone um, and I, I love showing people things. Uh, my sister calls it the or or sharing gene. Um, She was the brunt of the or sharing gene, because I don't think she got, I mean, not that she doesn't share, she's, she's very generous, but the boys in my family and my father, we tend to overshare with people. We tend to be like, no, you have to come see this. No, you have to read this. No, you have to try this. It's kind of, can be a little too much. So my sister calls it the or sharing gene. So I think my walks and me discovering parts of the city were me doing that, me sharing with people, because, what happens when your world gets restricted, which it has during the pandemic, and the most restrictive time was that period in April where I had friends that didn't want, weren't leaving their house because they didn't think it was safe. And at that point, the city did feel so infectious, right? Um, it did feel like you could, and at first I would say, well, it's not like it's floating through the air. You know, I said that early on, little did I know it floats through the air. You know, I mean, I've never really been conscious of something like that that just can float through the air like that. And so, I mean, flu, I guess, but that feels like more like someone sneezing on you. But it, it's one of those things when, when we first started, my world was so restricted to even just this neighborhood. Then when it started to expand and I was like, well, I'm going to go over to Astoria Park, which is this beautiful park in Astoria and another part of Queens, a very Greek neighborhood. It's been that way for 100 years as far as being a, a great haven greek immigrants in fact when you're there you hear greek spoken just by people at restaurants and certain restaurants are so greek that people aren't really speaking english much Um, and there's a beautiful park there that exists between two of the big monumental bridges one is called hellgate bridge which is a train bridge for the metro north and then the other one is the rfk bridge which used to be called the um the triborough bridge and there's a narrow strip of water there where the kind of the east river kind of Come comes through a very narrow area, that's called Hellgate because the water's always very um, turbulent and the, and the tides go up and down. But there's just a beautiful park there with gorgeous trees that are really big. And they had a giant Olympic-sized swimming pool there. They even had the trials for the Olympics there in the 30s. And so just figuring out, finding new places that are beautiful in New York City that most people don't know about is a good way for me to have a project that's fun and a research project. But also I think it's, for my reader, for my my followers on Instagram, I hope when we're all kind of locked down, it's like virtual travel. So a lot of messages say that. They're like, oh, I really appreciate you taking the time to pull this together because it felt like a trip or it felt like I got to take a walk with you. And that's why I'm doing it. I'm basically doing it because I find it creatively satisfying, number one. And also I like to share things. Um, But uh, yeah, like even this weekend I went, I'd forgotten about the chrysanthemums really bloom in this beautiful part of central park every year. And I was running around doing stuff. And I was like, I have some time to go, Oh my gosh, the chrysanthemums! So then I was like so happy, you know, that I could go and document that. Um, But I love it. And it's, you know, I love New York city. It's been through a lot right now. And, and I'm a big fan. I I'm here. I'm not a, I'm not a fair weather friend of New York city, Like some people you see in the media who be like, New York is dead. I'm like, it's not dead. And in fact, it was worse when I moved here, much worse. Things were much worse when I moved here. And that was in 88. So, and things were worse before that in the seventies. So New York will always survive. We might go through a bit of a bump, but, um, I love showing I love showing the beauty of things to people.
1: I think the the your natural skills of observation and also the fact that you're you're kind of like equal parts wordsmith and stylist if that's possible because your feed is so beautifully curated but also I feel like you so artfully express what's going on around you and and find a way to share these little gems of of history uh, with your followers, which I have really enjoyed following, is there a sense in Jackson Heights right now, and and in the city in general, that you guys have come through something really hard, and your your the brighter days are ahead?
0: I think the feeling is a feeling of accomplishment that we came through something very hard, and you know I think we lost depending on how you count it, thirty, twenty, you know, twenty five to thirty thousand people. Um, in a few months really and we haven't lost anybody for months so I mean we have lost a few people but not many so that was all restricted to two or three months where you lost that many people and so especially in my neighborhood which lost a lot of people because we have a lot of frontline workers and we have a lot of people who are immigrants who might live in tighter quarters and those jobs that they have tend to be the jobs that were either in the hospitals or in the in the, on the EMT or police or whatever it is or delivery people. Um, in our neighborhood, we really, I think, have solidarity as survivors, but, and we are happy. And I think the, the, the summer felt much happier, but I think all of us are worried we might go back up. Um, mask wearing is not even a big issue here. You might see a young guy, an 18 year old, maybe, you know, you'll see like a young dude who's too macho to wear a mask, maybe, but most people wear them. And most people are pretty diligent about it. And you know, I'm not, we're not crazy about it. Like if you're not near people, don't wear a mask. But when we walk by people, we pull them up. We, we have a really successful, one of, the, one of the things that's really helped my neighborhood is that they have an open streets program in New York City. And it's um, a concentrated thing they did to kind of help during the COVID thing, let people get out of their apartments a little more and have more spaces to roam. And my street is probably the most successful in the city by a no- number of accounts. It's 34th Avenue. It's a very pretty street because it's a boulevard. It has streets down, the, um, trees down the middle. And it's about 60 blocks. I'm not sure how many, blocks. 40 blocks. It's really pretty long. And that's been shut every day from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And I think we're finally getting it perma- made permanent. I think it will be permanent every day. Because it is now just a wonderful park. There are yoga classes, Zumba classes, you know, Thursday night there's like a ballet folklorita from, from, from Mexico performing. There's there's different performances. There's a there's a bingo club, it's been in the New York Times. Um, it's just a real microcosm of this incredibly diverse neighborhood, and everybody strolls in the nicer weather, everyone just, it got so crowded at evening, we would go another time, but everyone does their exercising there. And I can see my neighbors really taking their fitness very seriously. Um, People of every background are out there jogging and walking um, with their loved ones to stay healthy. So I think that's been really nice to see. And it's very heartwarming as well.
1: You know, the, the hardships that you guys experienced and then came out of on the other side, and now everyone's respectful of masks, everyone's kind of taking care of each other. Where I live in the West, we are not there. We're, it's it's. There's a lot of um, resistance to masks. There's a lot of, I would say, misdirected anger and frustration and um, lack of compassion for your neighbors. N- not necessarily like my neighbor next door, but neighbors yeah. in the city in general. There's just a feeling of almost... Denial of of what's coming, and our hospitals are nearing capacity. The ICU beds are, you know, are we had we've had record um, a record week for numbers here in Utah. Uh, so it's, you know, I, I hope when people listen to this that they'll take a little bit of of advice back from that. Um, that you guys are kind of on the other. Well, you're not on the other side. We're not on the other side yet, right? It's it's hard to say we're on the other side, but hopefully at least where you are, things are, are getting better. I want to talk a little bit about your love of Julia Child. <laughs> because I'm a huge Julia Child fan. Our podcast producer, Kelton, is a huge Julia Child fan as well. And so when I told him, when I was doing some research for this interview, and I was telling him, oh, you're, you're a big Julia Child fan, he was like, oh, I love Julia Child. What about her specifically do you love and, and that speaks to you?
0: I guess there's a number of things about her. I didn't grow up knowing her much. My mom was more of a Better Homes and Gardens reader and a McCall's and a Ladies Home Journal reader than she was a French chef reader. My mom was not someone who would have cooked that kind of food. She was not a a person who loved cooking. I think cooking was drudgery for her. She did have four kids. And for her, I did not get my love of cooking from my mother. My mother just wanted to get it done, right? And my grandmother, I did get uh, a love of cooking from. She really was a great cook as well. But, but Julia Child, I came to later, probably in my late 20s or 30s, because I, I, I bought, back in the days when you bought DVDs, I bought the French Chef, the PBS series that had like a, they had two or three kind of box sets. And I bought one and I just loved, I love her no-nonsense approach. I love that she is kind of, you know, I don't want to say anything in any way negative about her, but she's such a kind of gawky, kind of awkward person. Sometimes she, you know, she knocks things over. She kind of makes an error, but she never lets it hold her back. I love that she loves to teach people and share kind of like I do. And so I find that relatable. I also love that she loves quality. So she went and she, figured out, you know, when she was going to do it, she decided, well, I'm going to go to the um, Cordon Bleu, you know, that's where I'm going to learn. And she didn't want to be with the housewife curricula that was given. They said, well, you can go over here and with, be with the the housewives, right, to use that term. And she said, no, I'm going to be in the professional chef. And they let her do it. But I think she was one of the only women in there. And I, I also liked that she came late to her career because it's not like I have had a different career. I've been in magazines the whole time, but I did, as I was saying earlier, I didn't become an editor-in-chief until I was 50. So that can be late. A lot of editors-in-chief are editors-in-chief when they're 35. So I kind of felt like that too was a relatable thing in that you never know what's going to you never know at what age you're going to find that other, that thing. And it's not like my, my career was great until then. So I'm kind of wondering what's next after this. I think Julia for me would be an example of somebody that's not going to stop and she's not working because she has to necessarily, or because she's so driven that she can't stop working. It's that she probably kept finding ways to be active and work in ways that she found enjoyable. And that's what my goal would be is like, whatever I move through life as, I want to make sure it's something I enjoy doing. If I can, I want it to be um, a pathway wherever it heads that pertains to my interest, you know, gardening, cooking, one of those things.
1: Um, I have a little flash round of questions, if you will. Okay. Um, Okay. Are you a baker or a cook?
0: I'm a cook. I can't stand their measure.
1: (laughs) I saw your sourdough attempt (laughs) on Instagram. It's hard. I'm I'm a better cook, too. I'm a better cook than I am baker. Large gathering or small intimate dinner party?
0: Uh, Small intimate dinner party.
1: Yeah. I I could guess most of these, I think. (laughs) Your favorite way to spend a free afternoon?
0: Out in nature, exploring.
1: How do you show others that you love them?
0: I think I would say these days more than ever it's important to think of ways to let people know you love them more than you ever have before. So I'd say, whether it's just a text, whether it's a funny photo, whether it's a little gift for no reason, whether it's buying someone flowers, whether it's sending someone a card, I, I really into the, the idea of mail right now during this pandemic and using the mail a little more, not only because I love the mail, but also because, Getting something in the mail that's personal is so rare this day, these days. You don't expect it when you go to your mailbox. You really only expect bills. Even bills aren't probably there anymore. It's basically just junk mail and some other stuff. Maybe some maybe some Better Homes and Gardens magazines, but but you know some good stuff like that. But I think getting something handwritten that's a card or, or something is is even a little postcard is a great way to show you love you love someone.
1: I love that. I love getting a handwritten note. I think it it is so personal. Um, your favorite piece in your home. Favorite piece.
0: Well, we have a little bit of art that we bought um, and I have some little sculptures I really like that are um, that are little bronzes. It's not the sort of thing I've ever bought, like a bronze sculpture, but there are three three women, um, almost like the three graces. And they're very rough and they're made by a friend of mine who's a sculptor and she works in a modern version of kind of ancient Greece or even monumental 19th century sculpture she makes some very large pieces but these are very small and and I love them because they're from her earlier days her name is Sarah Peters and they're from her earlier days when she was just getting started when we went to a group show in Brooklyn and she had just the wax figures and we we bought the bronze version of the wax figures and we helped our payment helped her do the casting and then so it was kind of fun to be there at the very beginning with her and we're still friends and actually she moved to my neighborhood so she lives here as well
1: how neat yeah okay the most valuable lesson or thing that you learned from your parents
0: um you have to honor your commitments and i think that's something that um as a kid i remember desperately trying to get out of going to like a, a birthday party you know that i'd said yes to or Desperately wanting to ditch on this plan or that plan. And, and I have noticed, <laughs> this is me I mean, put on my old man hat. I'm not sure other parents have taught younger folks some of these lessons. Because I call it the flake factor. I feel like with, social, I feel like with texting and our phones, the ability to cancel and change everything all the time is I call it the flake factor because there's certain friends I have. I love, but I'm like, but you have to put the fact, you know, we'll make it a plan of it. but let's put the flake factor on that. Cause it may never happen. Like they're likely to cancel. Cause they'll just be a little bit like, eh, I don't want to do it. My, I rarely cancel anything. And I'm almost always on time. And I think I get that from my parents. And that's what I would call consideration, which I think the country is lacking. And it comes to what you're saying about masks. It's like, you can inconvenience yourself and do something you don't particularly want to do to do something right for the other person. That's what is, the world is about. And, you know, I was raised very Christian, and that's a Christian principle. And we seem to have forgotten that. And it's many other religions. It's their principle, too. But this idea of doing something that may not be your first choice just to make it better for another person, is something I think the country's lost because we've become so transactional where everything has to be, I'm not going to do this unless I get that. So there's no way I'm doing this until you give me that. And becomes, everything becomes this business transaction when I think as a country, how good we could be if we start moving towards just giving to people and then hoping through that karmic way that we'll get something back later, You know? even if it's just the joy of doing the right thing. Anyway, sorry, I'll get off my soapbox.
1: (laughs) No, I like the soapbox. I support the soapbox. Um, (laughs) What do you hope the reader of Better Homes and Gardens takes away every time they close that last page?
0: Joy. I want them to have joy. I want them to feel happy and safe and joyful and inspired to whenever they want to. I never want them to feel like that they are um, forced to do things. Um, I I don't want the magazine to feel like, oh my gosh, there's so many things I have to do now. It should just be, I can do that when I want to. And I may never want to, but I have the idea. So now I now if I want to do that, I can do it.
1: And finally, what would you tell a younger Stephen or about the career path and life journey that you've been on? What would you say to that kid in Texas?
0: I would say, enjoy yourself more all along the way. And don't be so hung up on always being, being doing the right thing or being, you know, I guess another way to say it would be like, goals are great, but don't let your goals get in the way of enjoying life. And I think there's something with that European way of joie de vivre that I missed out on. I wish I'd given myself a few more breaks, you know, and I did give myself a few, but I wish I'd done, you really want to look back and be like, and I did, I had, you know, I've had a great time. I sound like I'm so old, but I've had a great time so far. And I realize now at my age, I want to make sure I'm enjoying it as much as I possibly can and not getting hung up on expectations of myself that are keeping me from, you don't want to look back and be like, I didn't take advantage of my life the way I wanted to. You know, you don't want to waste that opportunity. So that's what I would say. It's like, maybe give myself more of a break.
1: I love that. Stephen Orr, where can people find you on Instagram?
0: Step Orr. S-T-E-P-O-R-R, Step4 on Instagram.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Such an honor to have you on.
0: Anytime. It's a pleasure to talk to you. As you can hear, I like to talk. I'm always like, I'll rattle on for an arc. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Let me stop because poor Jen needs to (laughs) move on to any questions.
1: I love it. You can come on here and... Rattle anytime you want, um, and I hope that I see you in person soon at Style Maker. I hope so
0: too. I hope so too. If, if if you're in New York City at any point when things get normal, let's go walk in a beautiful garden.
1: Done. That's a date I will be happy to keep. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm Jennifer Stag, and you've been listening to the Heart of the Home. I hope you'll subscribe, review, and rate this podcast, and tune in next episode for more Heart of the Home.